0: All right, guys, welcome back to another episode of The Harbor Site, and I'm back here with Dr. Kirk Parsley, and we're going to talk COVID, which is the topic of the, I don't know, like two months.
1: <laughs> Hard to talk about anything but
0: COVID right now, right? Yeah. Um, I, I'm trying. I, I want to talk about all kinds of other things other than, right. other than COVID, but that's pretty much, I don't think it's allowed. I don't think the government will allow it. <laughs> I think yeah. that's the only thing we're allowed to talk about.
1: Well and I and I think uh, half the population is bound to determine that we're all going to panic whether we like it or not like you know it's like, yeah. there there seems to be some vested interest in some population that we that we're all scared to death about this right now and if we aren't it's because we're evil people or science deniers or that's, Apparently that's yeah. what
0: I am just a denier. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Well, uh I I think there's lots there's lots of room to deny a lot of a lot of, a lot of narratives, you know, there's very, very few facts out there that are, that even exist. There's a very few facts that are available. There's not a lot of data. Um, and, uh, that doesn't stop people from having a vested interest. And I, and I'm not going to weigh in or postulate what their vested interest is, but if there's a narrative spin, there's a reason they're looking for, or they would just be reporting facts. So,
0: right. So, uh, Dr. Parsi was on a podcast a while back. You have to rewind a little bit, but we talked a little bit about sleep. Um, so for those of you catching up. Um, so real quick, give, give uh, the 30-second the elevator pitch, pitch of your background for the new uh, movies.
1: Joined the military right out of high school. Went to SEAL training. as a SEAL for six years, all pre-9-11. No cool guy stuff for me. Um, got out of the SEAL teams, went to college, went back into the military in 2000 to go through their medical school in Bethesda. Uh, finished there, did my internship at Balboa, did my did the undersea hyperbaric Madison residency to become a UMO. Went back to the SEAL teams as their doctor, um, and they're just awesome. A lot of which, guys
0: that which, were having what's that? Which would have been awesome. I've always yeah, loved it, when that happens.
1: Yeah, it was a, it was a it was a great way to come back to the community, give something back. Um and of course those guys didn't have diseases. Uh you know, they had injuries and they had, you know, some performance issues. They weren't performing up to their expectations. Right. So I I learned I learned how to increase people's performance uh and not necessarily treat disease. I hadn't been taught to increase people's performance. I'd only been treat I'd only been taught how to recognize and treat diseases and they didn't really have it so it really led to me you know developing a whole new toolbox honestly and that that led to you know a lot of notoriety around sleep because it was one of the foundational concepts I harped on Um, and uh, you know just led to opportunities worldwide in that and led into consulting and now that's really what I do is I help people optimize their performance uh, uh, through really lifestyle I'm sort of um. I'm like a health partner, you know, I'm a, I'm a health coach that can prescribe and that yeah. has uh, you know, an educational background to be able to wade through the, the faddish BS around health and performance and longevity and how all that stuff kind of hits new cycles and all that. So that's, that's a little more than 30 seconds, but it's the best I can do. And, and I'm you a do liberty very, very
0: well, especially, I mean, you, you really are known like almost like the sleep doctor, right? Mm-hmm. Um and the stuff that you put out in there. And that's something that I'm always trying to get people to do, especially people that I'm coaching or, you know, people that are on our stuff. I'm like, okay, well, what are you doing? I'm not losing weight. Well, how much are you sleeping? Well, I sleep, you know, four hours a night. Well, okay. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. It's like, yeah, it's not going I mean, to work, man. <laughs> yeah. It, it's,
1: it's a strange thing. It's, it's the one, uh, it's kind of the one foundational principle of health, right? Yeah, I, I right. break it down into sleep, nutrition, exercise slash activity, depending on if you're not in good enough shape to exercise. And then, you know, mindset or stress mitigation, whatever you want to call right. that phrase. But those are kind of the four big building blocks of being physically healthy, resilient and, you know, anti-fragile. Um, but none of those things other than sleep are considered a luxury, you know, uh, <laughs> and and sleep is the one that's the least luxurious. It, it's the least optional of all of those, right? Right. Uh, like there's a contract... Uh, to living in this body. And that is that it takes eight hours to re- to replenish and restore this body after you've used it for 16 hours. That's, that's built in, like, you don't get to negotiate that. Uh, you can work your way past it for a certain amount of time, but it has consequences. Just I've, like-
0: actually, I've actually uh, been getting into like heart rate vir- variability studies and things like that, looking yeah. at um, like omega wave and, and whoop. And, and I know that's a lesser variant mm-hmm. of it, but still, being able to notice that and even myself and I've, I've been a harping on sleep for for years now since I linked up with Jeff Nichols years ago. Yeah. And now I'm starting to really, now that I can actually look at it and look at what my heart rate variability is. And I'm like, okay, for me to recover, for my heart to actually recover. And then when I'm, when my, when I'm good and I train, I have the best training sessions and I burn more calories and I get more out of it. Right. But for me to and you do enjoy that, it more, and I enjoy it more. It's not like a yeah. I'm dr- I'm like otherwise if I'm if I'm like at fifty percent or lower I feel like I'm just walking through I'm training through mud. Yeah, it's you're, like you're it's, grinding and it's hundred percent
1: mental effort.
0: Yeah, and the which I can do actually, I can
1: push through that. Right,
0: right, but, but that's it's,
1: kind of to our detriment, you know. It's like yeah, people people like us can and, and not you know not to narrow us down to super elite, but you know just people who are really. Uh, you know, physically driven and physically robust can just can just push
0: through a lot of. Crap. Yeah, you black out and you just do the yeah. job, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, um, uh, but now tracking it now, I'm like, for me to get in the you know the I'd say eighty to hundred percent recovery, right? That this yeah. that big sweet spot for me to get up there, I have to, I have to sleep almost. I have to be in bed around nine hours, nine to yeah. nine nine and a half hours.
1: Yeah. I mean, you're, you're, you're better off than me. I mean, I have to, I have to spend nine hours in bed on an average day. And when I'm training really hard, I spend 10 hours. Like if, if I have like an exceptionally hard weekend where, you know, like I I'm getting after it in the gym, but I'm also, you know, paddleboarding and riding my bike and doing all other, you know, my buddy, yeah, like whatever. Stuff. And I yeah. just beat myself down, have a few beers, eat a crappy meal, man. It's like probably 12 hours to recover, but at least three yeah. or four nights of 10 hours, you know?
0: Yeah, so that I've been and so I've been learning like in and for me like staying in bed is not that's not a thing that I do I don't like being in bed right. uh, especially when I'm not fully sleeping but that's what it takes you got to be in bed ex- you know this amount of time because you're gonna sleep a percentage of that you know right. and a percentage of that will be you know in REM and deep and whatnot um, But yeah really getting into that and studying that I'm like learning that your meals have it, have uh, you, you know it, it directly affects your heart yep. like the quality of food that you put in your mouth directly affects your heart um, your routine, your level of act. I mean, it's just all- awesome stuff. And I, I, you know, not a doctor like the, the show mm-hmm. thing, but, uh, but I like the data, you know, yeah. and I, and when you get data, then now I can measure something.
1: Yeah. Well, the, the simple way to think about it is, um, it's really j- it's just to think about the stress hormones. Uh, so for anyone listening, that doesn't know, like really when we're looking at heart rate variability, we're looking at how much how many stress hormones do you have coursing through your body? Really? That's kind of the end result of what's controlling that because in your autonomic nervous system, you have a sympathetic, which causes your heart rate to speed up. And you have the parasympathetic, which is kind of really the absence of all of the speeding up bits, which causes your heart rate to slow down. And so if you have equal input from sympathetic and parasympathetic, Sometimes the sympathetic will fire and your heart rates will be close. Your heartbeats will be closer together. And sometimes the sympathetic won't be involved. You'll have maximum parasympathetic. It'll take longer. So then you have a beat to beat variability, meaning that you have a balanced nervous system, essentially. Well, the thing that throws that out of balance is stress hormones. And cortisol is the easy one to think about because that's what everybody knows of. There are others, but quarter- some cortisol is good. good right? Cortisol right. keeps us alive. Cortisol keeps us alert in proportion to our environment right our our eyes and ears and nose and mouth and skin that's always working. the senses are always working even when you're asleep. but the less cortisol you have the the less attention you're paying to your senses right and that's really what what sleep means is that you're no longer paying attention to your environment anymore and so fight or flight of course is maximum you know maximum levels of stress uh, and if you think about you know if you get in a really stressful situation which you've been in a ton of those like how many how many really stressful fight or flight episodes have you been in where somebody could have asked you a simple math question and you would have known the answer right i mean maybe once you're really trained up for a long time like the whole idea is to train the sympathetic tone out through rehearsing but you know for most people the point being that if you get in a if you get in a physical assault fist fight car wreck gunfight skydive for your first time, like all this stuff. That's just like, there's a huge threat to my well-being right now. Right. That leads to fight or flight, which leads to no brain function whatsoever. Right. It's all 100% instinctive at that point.
0: Do you think um, that's why, uh, like elite athletes, elite military, they're always in the sympathetic mode.
1: Yeah. Well, what we found in the SEAL teams is that, you know, and, and this is guys who've been around for a long time, right? So this yeah. isn't, this isn't like a five year, uh, 10, 12 year plus. You're telling like the 15 kind of 15-ish year guys who've been around for a long time. We we actually do a pretty good job of reversing the sympathetics so that people become really calm and very stressful situations, which is great, but the inverse of that happens too when they go home and they sit on their couch. They come back from deployment and they sit on their couch and it's quiet and there're no television on, and they're just at home when they're wiping kids and they're anxious beyond belief and they're freaked out and their stress hormones are through the roof uh, but w- but the point of what I was saying was that uh, when you're in fight or flight you know, you're sort of superhuman in your in your physical body capability and strength and speed endurance reflexes pain threshold all, all of that other stuff but what you're but your body is essentially catabolic meaning that you're your physiology is using your body as a fuel source to get out of this bad situation, and it's taking blood and nutrients away from everything that's not imperative to getting out of that situation. Well, the exact opposite of fight or flight is deep sleep, sages three and four of sleep, slow wave sleep. Right. You have almost no cortisol, and your body is maximally anabolic. And the anabolic is the repairing you're taking. All of the small bits uh, floating around in your bloodstream is stored in your cells, and you're combining those into bigger structures that are repairing damaged cells and replacing damaged cells and dead cells. And if you don't get enough anabolic behavior throughout the night, if you don't get enough sleep, you wake up the next day having to compensate for that lack of anabolic activity, and you do that, ironically, by becoming catabolic you then have to use more stress hormones to use your body as a fuel source to get you through the day. And so if you train really hard on top of that, I mean, you're, it's, it's a double dose of negative at that point. Then it's you're, gonna, already, you're already you're in, in your a deficit. Snowball. You're going to train super hard. You're going to put yourself in a bigger deficit. Yeah. Unless you're going to go home and sleep for 15 hours and allow yourself to recover from all of that, you're, like, you're actually wasting your time working out if you're, if you're sleep yeah. deprived.
0: Yeah. But same with, so I've noticed that. So when, when I'm down, I'm not recovered and I wake up and I, you know, I can feel it now yeah. that I've, I've learned, I, I feel, I'm like, you know what, I'm going to go for a walk.
1: That's right.
0: my, that's my workout yeah. for the day.
1: Some, sometimes that's all you can do, man. It's like, that's, yeah. this is the activity my body's going to benefit from today. Yep. Just, just, just getting some movement. Some just like mow your yard, mow your, mow your yard and wash your car. That's, some days that's plenty. Like,
0: <laughs> what are you, you doing? Know. I'm training. I'm I'm (laughs) training, waxing on, waxing off, man. Yeah. (laughs) So that kind of leads us in. So, like, my that that kind of is that whole thing of with this COVID stuff is I feel like people, apart from like we talked about off camera, was like the elderly and people that are, you know, higher risk and certain things. But, you know, America is unhealthy generally. Yeah. Um, And I think this virus is in my opinion, a wake up call to those individuals to like, listen, if you're overweight, you're in your twenties, you're overweight, you're smoking, you're drinking, you're eating shit. Like knock, knock. Yeah. So can you, uh, from your standpoint, can you explain to everyone what COVID is? Yeah. Well,
1: I mean, as much as, (laughs) as much as anybody knows. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, coronavirus, uh, Uh, obviously isn't exclusive to this, right? It's it's why it's called, that's why it's SARS-2-N COVID, novel coronavirus, right? Um, So coronavirus is a family of viruses. And by and large, coronaviruses uh, infect mammals and birds. Uh, When they genetically drift or genetically mutate enough, they can enter other... Other types, other types of animals, and maybe infect reptiles or something like that, but uh there tend you know there tends to be you know, viruses tend to hang around in families, and when a coronavirus is when a coronavirus infects humans um, we it's not our it's not so to, so I heard an epidemiologist say that we have about two hundred and fifty trillion viruses in our body at all times right so it's not like we can avoid viruses, but there are viruses that our body's really used to seeing.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, and coronavirus we get is the cold. Uh, SARS, or um, yes, wait, SARS 1 was a, was a coronavirus, and then MERS was a coronavirus, which is a camel to human, right? Um, and so they, those are just not they're not as common, so we don't we don't have natural immunity to them so when you're born you're born with an innate immune system right the, the immune system that you inherited from your mother essentially, um, but then you have a, an active immune system throughout your life this is the acquired immune system, which means you get exposed to something, you develop immunity to it so all a virus is, is essentially it's a protein shell. It has like a lipid inside that we call the lipid inside layering that protects what's inside of it, which we call, um, we call that an envelope, but it, you know, it's just, it's basically a ball with some protein structures on the outside. Uh, Coronavirus is called that because the protein structures, if you slice it, you know, in the plane that you're looking at it, because if they're so small, you have to see them with electron microscopes. And so, you're just seeing like very one very small fraction of it. And if you think about a spiky ball, if you cut it, if you slice it like a piece of bread, it would look like a crown. And that's why it's called coronavirus. And so all of viruses is a protein shell with an envelope protecting some genetic material. And that genetic material, the idea of that genetic material is to embed it in another Species, another uh, like an animal, something that's actually alive, and inject it into a, a living cell's nucleus and cause that cell to make a lot more copies of that RNA simply for the purpose of creating a lot more of itself, right? That's it. I mean, there, there's no end game. It's not like viruses go, yeah, we won. It's like, this is what they do, right? And why this happens, nobody knows. But this is kind of the game of viruses. They attach themselves to living organisms. They get engulfed into that cell. They affect the genetics of that cell. That cell then goes from producing you know, liver enzymes to producing more viruses. And then the viruses build up in that cell to such a large extent that they literally rupture the cell. And then all those viruses go out and attach to other cells. And the game is just to replicate, like get as many of us out there as possible. Now, the reason that, uh, the the most likely reason that we're seeing across the entire world that we're having this spike plateau and decrease is because there's some sort of genetic inborn mechanism to a virus. If you think about it, if a virus killed every organism that it infected, the virus couldn't last very long because everything would be dead. There would be nothing to spread it to. Um, if it doesn't, if it infects, if it affects, uh, uh, an organism and the immune system takes care of it so quickly that it never gets to replicate. It's also gone. So there's going to be some place in between that where it's going to infect a certain percentage and lead to a certain percentage of replication before that organism dies off, and that's how it's going to sort of maximize its production. And and you know we're we're getting into anthropomorphism where we're we're ascribing. Uh, human like goals to a virus, and that 's not true like we don 't know exactly why this happens. We just know that that 's the game and that 's easy to talk about so the coronavirus is i mean you think about it like it 's a flu or it 's like the common cold virus like it's, it's just it 's just a virus, and there 's nothing specific about this virus that makes it nasty other than it, our, our immune systems don 't recognize it, so we, we have to learn the virus, and once we learn the virus, we can develop antibodies to it, and then our immune system recognizes it, and then we deal with it better. And so if you're looking at a little kid, their, their immune systems are revved up and ready for this, right? I mean, they're acquiring their immunity right now. This is kind of this phase of life, what this phase of life is all about. It's figuring out how to exist on this planet. And so, of course, a novel virus going to them is no big deal because almost everything is novel to them right? Because they're just now developing their immune system. Now, the older we get, the kind of our, our immune system decreases over time. And really, if you think about why do old people die uh, more frequently than young people, because they're less resistant to disease, they have, they have less anabolic behavior, they have less immune system functioning. So an 80 year old is more likely to die from coronavirus than a 20 year old or a 10 year old, but an 80 year olds also more likely to die from a car crash or more likely to die from, a, you know, food poisoning or Influenza more likely to die, in die general. from any cause. It's going to happen more. I mean, go on the battlefield at 80 years old versus 25. You're probably the one that's dying. I mean, that's just the way the world works. Um, and not to be flippant about it. Of course, it's sad that people's parents and grandparents are dying. Like, you know, nobody's saying we want that. But, you know, my argument across this whole thing is if we look – when in the absence of good data, and we have almost no good data, right? Like we're we're so this we're in the uh we're in the infancy of understanding this virus. Um, and to be honest, we'll probably never fully understand it. Um, but in the absence of good data, I say, well, we rely we should rely on historical prefer- prevalence or precedence. I mean, so we we have viruses that infect or like we have lower, so uh, your upper respiratory system is basically from you know kind of here up. And then your lower respiratory system everything below that is essentially your lungs, right? So we have lower respiratory illnesses that kill people every year. A big part of that is flu. But that's also influenza-like illness, meaning that it's something that kind of looks like the flu. And it could be the flu. Maybe it's the flu. Maybe it's not the flu. But we just lump that into, well, that's an influenza-like illness. And maybe we tested it and we didn't find influenza, but they died from something that looked a whole lot like the flu. That's really what's going on here. I mean, it's... Uh, it's novel in that the pathology of it, so how it presents itself, like how, like at what point in the infectious stage is it causing uh, pathology, meaning uh, abnormal disease states to cells in your body, and which cells is it particularly attacking? This one seems to be uh, a lot more aggressive towards certain cells in your lungs that produce. Uh, surfactant, which is the kind of the fluid in your lungs that keeps the small little air sacs from collapsing upon uh, collapsing on themselves, and so that's leading to a lot of respiratory distress. Now, it's it's not true to say that everybody's dying from respiratory distress because that's just a form of distress, right? right. If we go to our elderly, they get in a car accident, uh, they break their hip, right? That's their distress. But they might actually die from the flu once they're in the hospital because they're under, you know, they're under distress. Right. And so, um, if you have sort of a comorbidity, um, so if say you have cardiovascular disease, so you have, you know, years of hypertension, maybe even congestive heart failure, and maybe it's fairly mild, and you're unlikely to die from it this year or next year, you know. But you know, you're 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 in a diseased state, right? You're not you're not 100% healthy, and now you get coronavirus. And that stresses your heart because your lungs have been stressed. And so you have to change the blood flow in your lungs and you're, it's harder to breathe and you're using more muscles and you're using more energy energy and you maybe die from a heart attack, right? Uh, Because you had a fragile cardiovascular system and this was the stressor. Well, if you broke your hip and you had congestive heart failure, you were still going to die of a heart attack, but it, you know, was it a hip fracture death? Uh, Right? So, uh, it's, it's nebulous, you know, the definition has kind of shifted around. But to answer your question, I mean, the Coronavirus is an influenza like illness, of which there are many, and it just happens to be a category that we're not specifically immune to yet, or that we can't deal with our immune systems can't deal with
0: very well. Is it just as dangerous, dangerous as every flu that we have every year?
1: I mean, so the other thing is that, the material inside, that genetic material inside of the inside the virus, that's RNA, um, and that mutates. So uh, I, I forget how many base pairs are in there, but there's basically about 13 or 14 genes within the, within a, a the average kind of virus within the coronavirus. And some of those genes code like the spikes that are on the outside of the cell or outside of the virus. And some of those genes code for the envelope, and some of those genes code for you know, whatever, the RNA or something like that. Um, And so those genes mutate. And as those genes mutate, if well, if it's the gene that mutates on the spike, you know, that causes the, that dictates how the spike looks, and you mutate that gene, well, now the spike looks different. So now your antibodies might not work to that anymore, because you developed antibodies that were recognizing this spike. And if now that gene mutates, then you can't, recognize, your antibodies don't recognize that spike anymore. And now you have to learn immunity to that again. Well, the flu, like all respiratory viruses are that way, right? So the flu, the reason we don't have like a solid vaccine for the flu, sometimes it works really well. Sometimes it doesn't work. It's because we're guessing. We're guessing is like what mutated strand we think is going to be the most prevalent, but it changes every year. If you go back, you can go to CDC's flu view, it's called, and you can look at the total number of flu cases every flu season and you can look up what viruses it's comprised of and it changes every year yeah. because some years it's a particularly uh virulent strain of h1n1 and then that one kills like 30 percent of the people who die from the flu die from that one sometimes it's like man we totally missed with this influenza uh vaccine like we total like total whipped it and didn't we didn't develop any immunity to it. And so we had a lot of cases of that and a lot of deaths from that. Uh, and then like I said, that that compartment of that category of influenza-like illness, I mean, that could be 20 viruses. And coronavirus could have been in there last year. And it was just a really small number. Like, so it it's not as novel as everyone wants to act like it is. And if you look back at historic precedents with H1N1, we had that really bad, pandemic with that one, right? And that was 2008-2009 flu season is when it started. And what we saw was the normal seasonality of the flu. So the flu goes up and it peaks somewhere around late December, early January, and it starts coming back down. And it usually goes away around March or April, the latest May. And so you have kind of a peak season of cases and deaths. And then You have the summer months and you have very few deaths and then you get, you start getting another peak right around the same time next year. But if you look at the 2008, nine H1 influenza, we had the normal flu. And then at the tail end of the normal flu, we got this H1N1 that didn't have seasonality to it. Right. It was novel. Our immune system wasn't ready for it. And we had like an equally big, if not larger spike than our normal flu season kind of during the summer months. But then interestingly, the next normal flu season almost did not exist whatsoever. Uh, there's hardly any cases, there's hardly any deaths. So it's really reasonable to think that if you get a particularly virulent virus that uh, infects a bunch of people, uh, and it's a novel virus, it's really aggressive, it's really hard on people's uh, bodies, and it kills off a lot of people that probably would have died that next winter, maybe would have died from another flu virus. But you know H1N1 came along and killed everybody who would have died from influenza B, um, and maybe 10% more, maybe 20% more. We don't really know. But as evidenced by the next year, not really having a flu season kind of suggests that well, we just kind of sped that up and we, yeah. and we gave this novel flu virus to a bunch of people who were going to die from the regular flu. And then the next, so the next season almost didn't exist. The following season, H1N1 was just part of it. And now over the last 10 years, H1N1 has gone to causing, gone from causing half the deaths to none of the deaths, the third of the deaths to none of the deaths, to 80% of the deaths to none of the deaths. And it's very likely that coronavirus is just going to fit into
0: that. And it's so just I went gonna on be part of it. I, I went on the CDC website and I was looking at those numbers and I looked at last flu season's numbers and I was like, "This is yeah, it was bad." Right. I mean, when that all happened, it was it was bad. It didn't yeah, seven, shut the it didn't shut the country down. No, seventeen eighteen, we had sixty thousand deaths
1: from flu. Uh, it was, that was a really bad flu season. And if you look at this flu season was looking really bad. This flu season was looking like we were going to match the 17, 18. we were going to get around 60,000 deaths. And then as soon as COVID came out, we didn't have any more flu deaths. And, and you can look at the CDC's chart on it. It's like we're tracking every other year. COVID comes out zero flu deaths all of a sudden. And it wasn't zero, but it went from, yeah. you know, it, it dropped by 90%. And now... The
0: definition, the definition
1: is nebulous. Like, what is a COVID virus right now? Like, what is yeah. a COVID death right now? Right. Uh, well, it kind of depends on when and when in the history and uh, the historic relevance we're talking about, because it kind of shifted what we were calling COVID and what types of tests are you using. And you know, some people are assumed cases. Some people are call- being caused COVID deaths, being called COVID deaths because. They think this person would have survived whatever their issue was if COVID wasn't uh, like in society and causing disruption to medical services, ambulances, and that type of stuff. So it gets kind of nebulous there. And if you can't really define it, it, you know, you can't measure something that you can't define. And the definition has bounced around and that's led to a lot of uncertainty and that's led to a lot of conspiracy theorists, you know going well why is this changing around so much like why are we shifting it to mean this and that and the and the important thing to realize is that if we want to compare this to things that have existed in the past then we need to hold some consistency as to how we're measuring this so we we didn't we, you know so 2017-18 when the flu season was really bad we didn't say that people who died at home uh, were afraid of getting the flu if they went to the hospital cause the flu season was so bad. So they died at home and maybe they wouldn't have died. So they're a COVID death or I'm sorry. So they're, they're an H1N1 death. So w- we haven't done that historically. So the fact that we're doing it now is problematic um, because now we aren't ca- comparing apples to apples. And then th- there's all this push towards testing. And again, testing is a nebulous term. There's lots of different ways to test. And there's lots of different ways to interpret tests. And everybody's saying, well, we need, to, we need this robust testing before we can go back. Well, the only reason to do the testing is to compare it to what we already know, right? Because let's say uh, with no historical precedence for anyone ever dying from a respiratory illness, we say there's going to be 100,000 deaths this year from a respiratory illness. Seems like a lot, right? But compared to what? Like you have to compare right. it to something. And if there's no history, then you don't know. And so if we compare it to flu-like deaths, it's actually pretty close to that. And everybody says, well, now you're denying its importance. So it's like, no, all you're saying is that if we're going to compare it, we have to compare it. So if we're, going, if we're going to measure it, we have to say, why are we measuring? We're measuring it to see how deadly it is relative to everything else that could kill us. And specifically, how deadly it is relative to other viral infections that could kill us. That's what we're really measuring. Well, if you start changing how many people you're testing and you say, well, we're going to test everyone in America. Well, now you've just made all of your historic data useless because you've never tested everyone in America for anything else. Right. And if you say everybody who dies during the COVID season and we're not sure why they died, we're calling that a COVID death. You've just changed that definition now and you've made all of your historic data useless. And so they're, you know, everybody's, you know, all the leaders are scared. If you look at the, the experts they hire, why do you hire an expert? You hire an expert to decrease your risk, right? That's right. what experts do. Right. And so as experts are risk averse <laughs> and they're going to, they're going to put out the worst possible scenario because that's what they're guarding against. That doesn't mean they should be setting policy. That means that that should be taken in as one of the factors and yeah. other experts need to weigh in. And then somebody has to make the hard decision. And I'm not saying what that decision should be. I'm just illustrating how messy it's gotten and how hard it is to have a
0: solid answer anymore. Yeah. Cause for me looking at it, I'm like, I, cause I've looked at the same numbers that you just mentioned and it's like, okay, so co- this is here. COVID is now right here, but we have never, done the damage that we've done to this country and installed the fear that we have installed into this country. And I'm like, so why are we doing this? This doesn't make any logical sense.
1: Right. And in the absence of logic that leads to people thinking there's an agenda, which leads to conspiracy theorists, which leads to distrust, which leads to a worse social mood, which leads to more problems. Um, I, you know, I made the case in a couple of my early COVID videos that if you woke up every morning, and the media had published where every death in America happened from car accidents and told the human toll story about the 75-year-old grandmother who was going to her five-year-old grandson's birthday party and died in a car wreck. Yeah. Everybody would be scared to death to get in their cars if that's all you heard every day. Um, If you look at the total number of people who have died And I always make the statement, you either have to trust all the data or none of the data because we don't know what's true yet. So just go, okay, everybody's telling the truth. All data is equally valuable. If you you go there, we've had about 200,000 deaths from coronavirus worldwide since we've been tracking it. And if you look at the total number of deaths in the world from January 1 to now, it's about 19 million. You do that math, that's 1% seems really high for a viral death, right? Wow, 1% of the population, like that seems really big. But you're ignoring the fact that 99% of everybody else died from something else. And you aren't shutting down the economy for that other 99%, but you're shutting it down for this 1%. That makes no sense. That makes no sense whatsoever. What's the, what's the
0: death? Yeah, what's the death in obesity and heart disease? We're not shutting grocery stores down and taking right. spoons out of people's mouths. Right. And you know and there's another great metaphor to It's like, should we do
1: that right should should we tell people they can't eat McDonald's and take that away from them uh, I don't know that seems like a rough argument to make that you're you're dictating what people eat there's there's definitely validity to that right You can say, well that uses a bunch of health resources and we're worried about, we're worrying about overwhelming the health industry right We're worried right. about overwhelming the medical industry so you're not allowed to eat crappy food anymore and now who gets to judge what crappy food is and now you're really impinging on people's you know, freedoms right and so we're doing this is this, what this country is supposed what to be about. about yeah and that's what we're doing right now like that's what we're doing with no you have to wear a mask and you're not allowed to leave your house why like because we know that there's this very strong correlation between eating crappy food, having a bad immune system, getting diabetes, being obese, like, we know that exists, but it's correlative, right? Right. Like, if we said, hey, every time you eat a hamburger, you lose one year off of your life. If we knew something that specific, then there would be a much stronger argument against, you know, eating certain foods. So in the absence of that, it's like, and, and you know, as well as I do, like the, there's there's fad science around nutrition right and so people mm-hmm. will say well it's all the carbohydrates get rid of all the carbohydrates well you know 20 years ago you had to get rid of all the fat and you know 10 years before that you had to get rid of uh, all the animal the products, products. who knows and so yeah. that kind of bounces around uh, you know we, we, i think we can hang our hats on the idea that twinkies probably aren't healthy you know what <laughs> i mean like there's some there's some known valuable values uh, variables but can we tell people you shouldn't drink alcohol i mean that's hard on the body. There's really, it's hard to make an argument that is physiologically healthy to drink. There is some to that, right? It can relieve some stress. Like maybe, maybe in certain varieties of red wines, there might be some, you know, enough antioxidants, right? (laughs) Right. It's like, uh, you know, probably not, but you know, almost, almost all of the centenarians, you know, drank and a lot Mm -hmm. of them drank to in excess, you know? So uh, it's not causative, but it's highly correlated. So you have to be really careful of how you like, how you control for that. And at the end of the day, you have the right to be unhealthy. You just do like, you know, you, uh, you know, living is a right. Like we can take your driver's license away for driving a hundred miles an hour all the time. Like you you, you don't have the right to endanger everybody else's life, but you have the right to endanger your own life. You really do. Right. I mean, I mean, that's just the way it is. Um, uh, yeah, you know, we put some limitations on that. I mean, the reason you have to wear a helmet isn't for you, right? Right. That, that the reason that you have to wear the helmet is because it's very expensive to have all of these uh, motorcycle head injuries, right? And put you um, in the
0: ICU for, you know, right. six months because you have right. a brain injury. And so yeah.
1: we're trying to, we're trying to hold on to resources by making you wear a helmet. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, the motorcycle riders were like, I can risk my life if I want to. Mm. Yeah, but we're saying that if you if too many of you do that, then we won't be able to treat the other people who are right. acting more responsibly. So we're going to make you be a little more responsible. We're controlling some risk, and that's a hard thing to swallow, man. I remember when the seatbelt laws came out; I was so pissed off about that. I'm like, who are you to tell me what I do? You know. And now everybody just accepts it. Wear your seatbelt. Yeah. Uh, and of course, everybody overreacted to that. Well, this is. Yeah, we're, this is East Germany. All of a sudden they're dictating what pulling us over for just not wearing a seatbelt and who are they? And, and so there's a lot of that. Every time you start infringing on people's civil liberties, you get, you get some hysteria around it, but I think it's all going to, it's all going to mellow out. It's all going to so level out. Like, Do you think sweet? the level
0: of response equals what's going on? I mean, I don't want to no, put I mean, you I'd, in a box, but yeah
1: yeah I mean, and that's, and that and we definitely totally react we totally overreacted to this. I mean all the data suggests that we did way too much and the- also the data is very unclear as to whether or not what we did made any difference right that's that's the sad thing like we don't really know that we flattened to the curve. we don't know that we're yeah. assuming we did, but it's kind of like yeah it could have you know done the,
0: it on its own anyway, right, and it could have run kind its kind course like, and
1: yeah and, right. and it's kind of like the old folk. The old folk story of, uh, you know, of the guy in India blowing the horn, and somebody and a traveler going, "Why do you blow the horn every morning?" It's like to get rid of the lions. It's like, "Well, where are their lions?" Like, not they're not because I'm blowing the horn every day, right? (laughs) we're, We're we're kind of we're kind of in that same bag, right? It's like, well, we told everybody to stay home, and the death toll that we were afraid of didn't happen, so. Must be because everybody stayed home. <laughs> so, so just keep staying at home. So keep staying home and, <laughs> yeah. and no one will die. Well, that doesn't make any sense. That won't work, obviously. So, I mean, we've kind of backed us. we've painted ourselves into a corner a little bit. And it's going to take some real courage to figure out a way to get out of this. Um, and there's going to be people who are just very risk averse who don't want to get out of this, who, you know, if you're, if you're a multimillionaire and you're sitting at home and this really isn't impacting your future, uh, you know, past your yeah. your fear of dying. Uh, you know th- that's different than if you're, you know, Joe Blow, you know, the machinist that works in Iowa and you live paycheck to paycheck in a modest lifestyle. Uh, you know that maybe this is what's going to kill you. Maybe this is, you know, maybe losing your home and making you you and your family homeless. Maybe that's that's a bigger fear to you than right. this virus. And now, how do you tell those people? Oh, no, you have to stay home because these elderly people might die if you go to work. Well, why don't we just quarantine the elderly people? Right. Um, if, that was
0: my whole thing. Like, right. if you're high risk, stay home. Right. If you're sick, stay home. The rest or of everybody, if,
1: go to work. Yeah. Even if you're just really afraid of it, stay home. Right. So, if <laughs> yeah. you, like, I'm 50 years old. Am I at high risk? I don't know. Like, I, <laughs> I'm not the 65 plus, but I'm not the 30 year old either. So where yeah. am I? I don't know. So how afraid are you, Kirk? You can go out if you want to, you know, uh, right. if you're 65 and you're like, hell, I'm robust and healthy and I don't care. Like I want to go out and do my thing. I want to go see my grandkids. I want to go work. I want to go travel. Yeah. You should be able to do that. You should be able to do that. Um, you know, this whole dichotomy of, if you don't think people should stay home, then you value money more than life. Like, you no, know, that's that's you know that's an ad hominem attack man that that doesn't make any sense like you have to have money for life right i mean the reason that that that, that frustrates live longer isn't because of medical science the reason we live longer is because of money yeah like like we we can do like we can build safe places to live we can build uh we have weapons to defend ourselves we have air conditioning we have heating we can mass manufacture uh food we can grow stuff because of technology, like, you know, this is, uh, these are all things that can't be overlooked. And to say that the only form of suffering is death is ridiculous, obviously, that's right. not true. So if somebody is, I mean, I was, ta- I was having this conversation with one of my uh, employees uh, last week, you know, there there's been times in my life where not having no income for two months would have been financially devastating, would have ruined me. You know, I'm lucky that I'm in a point now where, okay, I I can go a few months without having any income, and it's not really going to impact me that big. Right. There are lots of people, lots of hardworking, responsible, educated, you know, benevolent members of society that are that are really suffering right now, and they are in so much fear because of financial stress. Like they don't know how they're going to dig themselves out of this hole that they're in, and maybe they're going to lose their house. Like, what do you do when you lose your house and you have a family? Like,
0: I don't know, man. Like, that seems pretty rough. And that's what's frustrating with me is like, because I'm, you know, I, I have several small businesses. I'm in a very small area of North Carolina and I'm watching businesses close up shop because of this. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, there's a
1: few, there's a few restaurants in Austin that were just like, we're doing it. We're opening like,
0: because
1: <laughs> we're, we're, we're gone if we don't open. So if well, the government comes what, and shuts us I'm down at. and arrests us, at least we have some shot.
0: Yeah. That's, and that's kind of where I'm at with our gym and uh, yeah. like in our area, I'm like, I'm open in May 1 and that's just, that's just the way it is. And you know, if they try to find me or arrest me, I'll have to deal with that one it's there. But it's like, I've got employees that they rent still do at the end of the day. Like I get right. it, but like if right. you're sick, stay home. Other than that, right. I've got to operate. Right. And we got to deal with it. And you think about it, if, if you
1: know, if 80% or 70% of the workforce could go back, you're right, they, they're they young, robust, healthy, they live in a, in a very lightly populated area, they have yeah. a business that doesn't require a lot of interactions with other people, you let 70% of the population go back to work, well, now the government only has to help out 30% of the people, right? Right now, the government has to help out 100% of the people with our money, right? So right. if you think about it, the government's the government's budget is a percentage of our income, right? It's not. <laughs> we're not making of, anything.
0: <laughs> yeah,
1: it's not a hundred percent of our income. It's a portion of our income. Right. So if you take away all of our incomes, you can't replace it with the portion of income that we gave you last year, right? Because it's not enough to replace everybody's income. Uh, so. I mean, it's just, it's not feasible to do what they're doing. And I, I've yet to really hear the exit strategy. And that's the concerning thing to me. And and again, like I'm no expert in this area. This is purely my opinion. But if you look at the data, like what data is going to drive people into saying, okay, we can go back. Um, You know, it's very clear that we, that we overreacted. Uh, But we were, we based that on the information that we had at the time. And we did all of this to flatten the curve. Well, yeah. the curve's been flattened.
0: Now what? So now why are we doing all
1: of this? Right. And now they're, oh, well, well what about what about the second wave? It's like, well, let's worry about the second wave when we start seeing evidence of the second wave. But right now, we need to worry about all the other things that are likely to kill us, including suicide and homelessness and domestic abuse and drug addiction, drug overdose, alcohol abuse, like yeah. all the stuff that's going to be accelerated by crushing the you know, socioeconomics of America.
0: So, so here we sit and, and, and you made a great video about the mask thing. Um, so if you guys haven't listened to that, go, go to, to Dr. Parsley's YouTube and his Instagram, it's all on there. Um, but so we've got, I, I don't even fully know what the rules are. Six, if you go out six feet apart from each other, don't, we have to sanitize everything with Clorox and then we all right. have to wear a mask. Right. So what is that actually doing?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, that's, that's the other part that I'd say, like, how, how do we get out of this? Because, like, as if we don't know if anything we did had any impact, right? There were eight states that didn't do anything. They were just like, <laughs> whatever. Like, we don't, we don't believe in this. <laughs> they didn't do anything. Well, they had the same death rate as everybody else. They had the same infection rate as everybody else. Now, they're not very populated states, so we can't necessarily extrapolate that
0: to New York City. But percentage-wise, yeah. like per capita. But,
1: right. And so yeah. if, if you go, it, it, the, the point is, like, we don't know. I and mean, let's say something we did do made a difference. Okay. Well, was it wearing masks? Well, was it washing our hands more? Was it social distancing? Was it sheltering in place? Was it, you know, was it, was it, like, we don't know. And, and we're never going to be, a, it's, multifac- it's multifaceted, right? It's a multivariable analysis at this point it's very messy. And it all kind of ends up being modeling because you're trying to control for variables, but that's a game. Um, and so, you you know, there's assumptions made in what you're controlling for And it's hard to build a model off of assumptions. You have to build mathematical model that's going to be accurate, you have to build off of data. And so we're building a lot of stuff off of assumptions. And so we're assuming that masks help. We're assuming that social distancing helps. If you go, if you go to NIH, you, know, you go to PubMed and you l- look up social distancing. This may be new to most people in America. It's not a new term. No. Medical industry has been looking at this for a long time. There's not very strong evidence that social distancing matters um, when we're looking at other airborne viruses like influenza's. So we've been hesitant to push that too hard because it's kind of unclear if it makes a difference. Same thing with masks. So we don't really know. We don't, and we've never done the sheltering in place. So we just made up a bunch of crap and threw it in there to give people (laughs) something to do. Because like TSA, right? TSA was a response. It's not very effective. Like there's there's a little secret that- Nothing. There's a dirty little secret that that doesn't make any difference, but it makes people (laughs) feel safe. And I think gloves are the same way and masks are the same way and social distancing are the same way. The thing that concerns me is the policing of all of this, that encouraging neighbors to tattle on their neighbors for not doing what you think they should do, even though there's no evidence that they should be doing that. It's getting dangerously close to saying their religious beliefs are causing problems. So we're going to report their religion. Well, you don't know that. I mean, there could be some truth to that, right? If right. they're into doing something weird religiously. And so that that's, to me, the, the social economic aspect of this is much more concerning. And I think that they're insincerely using the medical fear of this to control the social economics. And, and there's some sort of agenda there or it wouldn't be being done. And maybe it's just that the people who are reporting it are really scared. Uh, but maybe it's something more nefarious than that. I'm not going to weigh in on why it's there. But if you look, like I said, you go to literature, go to NIH and go to CDC, go to PubMed and look up the efficacy of all this stuff we're doing. Look up the pandemic uh, plans. We have pandemic plans in place. You know, We rewrite them every couple of years. We're doing everything we know to do and more. There's nothing else to be done, and the data right now does not support that this is more deadly than anything else. The most get, recent data, most recent data from New York is 20% of the city is already infected, and if you look at that death toll, that makes it a 0.01%, which is a tenth of the flu. So,
0: if, if, it's, it's a
1: hard get, it's a hard thing to dig our way out of right yeah, now.
0: Yeah, not to get totally crazy, but if you know you've probably looked at like if you look at asymmetrical warfare and you look at manuals for asymmetrical like. One of the ways that you de- destabilize a country is you introduce a pandemic. Right. And there's and, a,
1: and there's a, there's a lot of theory around that right now. There's, there's a, there's a
0: step-by-step process on how you destabilize a country and, and you know, a pandemic is one of those. And, and, uh, one of your, one of your frogmen wrote a book, uh, it was a hundred deadly skills, Clint, Clint oh, yeah. Emerson's book that's in yeah. there. Uh, yeah. How to survive a pandemic and that, and, so like this, before all this happened, it was in that book because it's a thing that we've studied and it's a thing that we've put in place. Yeah. So, so there's reason to suspect that, right? Right. And, when, and when, the,
1: when the powers that be aren't forthcoming, it lends itself to more speculation and people right. are going, well, why are they covering this up? So that's sort of my point is if you spend any data, you're risking you you're risking you're losing the confidence and the trust right. of the of your constituents, and as soon as you do that man it's it's pandemonium i mean that's that's why it's called pandemonium.
0: can you share your analogy for the mask because then after you do that oh, yeah. I have a question for you
1: <laughs> yeah, so I mean the mask really frustrates me uh, not because I care if people wear a mask but I care that I'm being forced to wear a mask when I know damn good and well that what I'm doing isn't making any difference whatsoever yeah. um and you know, th- there's some speculation as, uh, as to how it could possibly help. And but, you know, the the reason everybody's so afraid of this virus is because we know it's airborne. So there's a difference between aerosolization and airborne. Aerosolization is like when you sneeze or you cough and you're bursting out little water poly- uh, sputum particles that actually have the virus in it and that's sticking to things and getting on people. Right. and that's and that's aerosolization airborne means it just floats around in the air just like dust particles when you walk in your room and the the sunlight's coming through at a certain angle and you can see all that stuff floating that's always there well those dust particles are orders of magnitude larger than viruses i mean way bigger like a hundred thousand times bigger than a virus and if you if you look at the resolution of the of the human eye The smallest thing the human eye can see with great vision, like with 20-20 vision, the best, the smallest thing you can see is 0.1 millimeter. So if you hold up a piece of cloth and you can see a hole in it, the smallest that hole could possibly be is 0.1 millimeter. Now there's a really good chance that's way bigger than that. But let's just benefit of the doubt, say that a whole, a mask is filled with, uh, a number, like all of these holes that you can see, and all of them are at the threshold of sight, so they're all 0.1 millimeter. Well, if you say, okay, well, a virus is 100 nanometers, the coronavirus is basically 100 nanometers, and you do the math on that, if you blew the, if you blew the virus up for, for a concept to the size of a marble, if the virus was one inch steer, the smallest hole you could see in your mask would be 83 feet by 83 feet. And so the question is, if I were hurling marbles at that hole and I had brick walls on all sides of the hole, how many times would I not make it through the hole and given an 83 feet window with a one inch marble, I could get millions of marbles through that or maybe not millions, but I could get, you know, definitely tens of thousands of marbles through that hole at once. Yeah. And so if you're worried about that being airborne, you know, it's like, if you can put water in a colander and you're stopping some of the water, but if you're trying to get what's below it, keep what's below it dry, you're not going to do a very good job. And it's questionable as to whether you're doing anything, right? right. So that's, that's kind of the metaphor for the mask. Now there's, there's the argument, that's for a self-made mask. Like, so the surgical masks, those are different. Those are different fibers. Those are multiple layers, crisscrossed across each other. You can't hold up a surgical mask and see holes through it. Right. So that's filtering out something different, but it still doesn't filter out things 100 nanometers small. Like, it just doesn't. Like, because it's so circuitous to get through there, there, there's going to be fewer, but those still get through. N95 masks are called N95 because they filter out 95%, which means 5% of it's still getting out. And if, is 5% enough to give somebody next to you the, I don't know, 5% of what? What's the total number? How are How close are they? Like, it's just not cut and dry it's just so, it's, so you can't if you're say, afraid do this you, and nothing will happen
0: so if you're afraid then you need to wear the n95 mask like if that's if you're really concerned and you want to wear a mask that's the mask that you should be using
1: yeah i mean and and not you know, a, tea, the, not if a if skivvy shirt if, cut up <laughs> if you look at the influenza data so uh the influenza data they did um an outpatient facilities. so. You know, th- this is like your regular GP doctor who's seeing people are coming into their office sick. And so they looked at the comparison between surgical mask and N95 mask to see how much of the staff got infected. They did this across a lot of different locations and had a really robust number. And it turns out that the same number of people, same number of staff contracted influenza, whether there's clinic used surgical mask or N95 mask. So it's questionable whether that matters. In Korea, it was a super small study. Um, so you can't, I mean, you can't put a whole lot of importance on it, but it, it leads to a reasonable question. Uh, they did this super small study where I think it was only like four people or maybe 40 people. It was really small. Um, and they, they had them cough, essentially like on a petri dish to capture the virus. And then they swabbed the outside of the mask and they swabbed the inside of the mask. And they have these people with known coronavirus They'd have them cough, and then they'd measure how and they did a surgical mask, no mask, and an N95 mask. Well, the number of particles that hit the collection disc was the same. Mm-hmm. The number, almost, almost all of the virus that came through the mask was on the outside of the mask. And it didn't matter, like I said, if you coughed with a mask on, an N95 mask, a surgical mask, or no mask, you still infected the, the Petri disc to an immeasurable difference. So given that, it's like, are, are we doing anything with this? It's probably true that we're doing something, right? But yeah. would that matter in the general population? So this whole idea of wearing a mask outside, zero, like there is zero evidence anywhere in any literature at any time in human history that that makes any difference whatsoever. They you're outside. I mean, if you could track the air outside, there's never a still moment out there. How far would virus particles have to float around and for you to get, I mean, this is just, this is absolute insanity. Uh, and you have people exercising with surgical mask
0: on. I mean, so that, that leads me to my next thing is, okay, so now we're, you're, we're, many states are being forced to wear a mask. Maybe it helps a little bit. Maybe it doesn't. We don't know. What is, what is the dangers of wearing that mask for extended period of times and breathing in all that carbon dioxide? Yeah. I mean,
1: I, I don't, I don't know that either, but I mean, it's it's definitely correlative, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's bad <laughs> to to be right. not oxygenating your cells, especially what if you are somebody who has this coronavirus and we know that how you know, you're not getting has one of the major side effects of this or, um, or maybe one of the major, uh, pathologies of this. So, I mean, I, I think that the mask probably have a worse psychosocial impact than anything. I mean, I don't think, I think it's really hard to feel safe and comfortable in the world right now with everybody walking around like everyone else has the bubonic plague and, and yeah, like I, I'll walk out of a store and no, and you know, no one's willing to come in the other side of the same door while I'm walking out. And we're both wearing masks and they're looking at me, you know, like I'm, like I'm a threat, like I'm invading, I'm invading their space and I I need to get away from them so they can go through this door. Well, I mean, that doesn't, that doesn't lead itself to feeling comfortable and happy in the world, you know, that's, that's just not, uh, it's not beneficial to the psyche and if we knew with a hundred percent certainty that that was making a huge difference, then it would be worth it. But if you're damaging the psyche and you don't know that what you're doing makes a difference, it's kind of irresponsible to damage the psyche. Yeah. And of course it's, it's worse for you to not breathe off carbon dioxide. That's why you breathe it off. You know, of course that's a bad thing. Um, you know, how much does that impact your physiology versus mine versus someone who's obese versus somebody who has lung disease? Like, you know, that's variable, but we know it's not healthy. We know it's not ideal for the immune system and the health and respiration and, you know, right. oxygenation of their tissues. We know it's not ideal. So if we're compromising that, we better be damn sure that we're doing it, that for the, you know, the, the, the juice is worth the squeeze, right? That right. there's more benefit to it
0: than, you know, than there is risk. So, so knowing all that, like I said in the beginning, I feel like this is a wake up call for the unhealthy. Like, what can we, what could people be doing? if you are afraid and you're not living a healthy lifestyle, then what could you be doing to, to make your body stronger? To right. Fight off influenza and, and, and something like this.
1: Yeah. And, uh, and the really good news about this bit is it's exactly the same stuff you're always supposed to be doing. It's exactly the same advice. So I counsel, I, people. I know, I
0: know that. I just want to hear yeah. you
1: say it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I, I coach people year round and I tell them exactly the same thing that I tell people now. It's like, I still believe that, I still believe that the most uh, resilience inducing immune boosting thing you can do is sleep well. Like you have to sleep well. And, And we know, like from our, from our past professions, we know how valuable sleep is. There's a reason we use that as an interrogation technique to break people down, right? right. It's really, really hard. To, right. It's really, really hard to be good when you're sleep deprived. And so we know this has a cost to it, like a huge cost to it. And there's really no excuse for it. You're in control of your life right now. You're in control of your time to a larger degree than you usually are. You can prioritize sleep. And I think there's very little evidence that you can be healthy without adequate sleep to any significant degree. And so all your other efforts are wasted uh, or at least demuted to, you know, they're significantly less powerful. So uh, get good sleep, prioritize sleep, uh, nutrition, you know, the, the, the easiest thing with nutrition, I, I think the most, the most important two things, one, anything that spikes your, your blood glucose That impairs immunity, and that's a complex pathway. But blood glucose is very, very, blood glucose and fasting insulin are very tightly uh, uh, correlated with immune function. And then the other thing is anything that's antigenic to your stomach or your, your gut, right? So when you eat foods that Don't want to be eaten like certain vegetables, seeds, nuts. They have, like, you know, the reason people are allergic to strawberries is because strawberries have a defense against getting eaten, right? Uh, And nuts have a defense against getting eaten. And so that antigen causes an immune response. And so when you eat foods that your body's not designed to eat, that we didn't evolve to eat, or you're eating things that we did evolve to eat, but your immune system doesn't tolerate them well, right? you're actually giving up part of your immune system. If you think of your immune system as a, as an army, right? It's a military force that you're using to fight off the enemy, which is this virus. If you're worried about the coronavirus, you want as much of your army as possible, don't you? Like you want all your, you want all your specialists, you want your snipers, but you also want all your grunts. Like you want everybody you can have to marshal whatever forces you need. Why waste 30% of that on eating something that your body's going to react poorly to? Why waste right. 30% of that on eating something that's going to spike your blood glucose to a level that's going to cause an immune response. So, yeah, that's, that's one aspect. Then there's, uh, so, I'm sorry, that's two. So we have sleep and nutrition. Then you have, you know, I call it activity slash exercise. If you're somebody who already exercises, you need to keep exercising. If you haven't exercised for 15 or 20 years, might not be the time to like dive into the deep end. Yet. Like let's start with activity. Let's start, right. you know, walking. Let's start, Like I said, mowing your own lawn, washing your own car, cleaning your house, going up and down the stairs. like Let's start there, let's start with being more active. And we know that that elevation of our cardiorespiratory system, that perfuses our tissues more, that exchanges, that gets waste products out, that gets more oxygenated tissues, more nourishment to other tissues, and it makes us healthier. It makes our immune system function better. It actually causes our lymphatics to flow. There's very little lymphatic flowing from just from breathing. It's mainly like activities, especially like bearing down type things where you're struggling, that causes an increased flow of lymphatics. That's where our immune system is circulating through, and it balances immune, it balances your immune system by uh, affecting your blood glucose and insulin sensitivity, right? And so those all go hand in hand. And then the most important, I feel like, the hardest kind of thing to coach people on right now is that stress mitigation piece, right? that right. mindset. Because we know that when you're stressed, you're, you release more cortisol, which leads to increased blood glucose, which leads to increased insulin, which leads to decreased immune function. We also know when you're stressed, you don't sleep well. When you don't sleep well, you have more stress hormones. When you're stressed, you eat, you make worse food choices. You have less willpower. When you're stressed, your exercise tolerance goes down. And so you're, you have to control for that stress. But right now, you're, everybody's in this stressed out environment where they're feeling like they're having to control their stress to be able to control these other three variables that they only have to control because of this thing that's stressing them out. Um, so I, I just say, we'll back off of all of that. Just realize you can only do what you can do. And I give the automobile a, a metaphor again, not to be glib, but just because it's easy to visualize there's a risk of dying when you get in a car. Right. And you mitigate that risk by several things. You know, the U.S. government gets involved, and we mandate that cars pass certain certain tests, right? Yeah. There's a federal law about wearing your seatbelt. There's federal laws about putting uh, airbags in cars. And then there's state and local laws for you, know, you, can't, you can't drink and drive, you can't text and drive, you can't speed, you have to stop at red lights and stop signs. You have to obey all this stuff. And so you're, you're doing your best to mitigate you, your government. You're abiding by the rules that the government, state and local governments have decided will mitigate your risk of dying. Now, does that mean that you, can, you, you can't go out and die by doing everything perfectly? Of course you can. You can get in your car, do everything exactly right, stop at a red light, some drunk driver hits you at 120 miles an hour and you die. Right. Right you did everything you could. And so that's what I keep telling people. It's like, the best defense you have right now is to do the things you know that matter. And the things that matter, are sleep, nutrition, exercise, and stress. That's what matters. That's what we know. Everything else is speculation. Mask, speculation. Social distance, speculation. Vitamin C, speculation. Zinc, speculation. We don't know. The things that we know historically will make you the most robust, hardest to kill is being young, can't control that yeah. very healthy robust well rested well nourished you can control all the rest of that
0: yeah yeah so eat right move more Get, yep. sleep
1: yeah it's not that hard is it not that hard yeah
0: <laughs> you would think <laughs> yeah okay well, I mean, to me
1: to me i would be really comforted if i were stressed if i were so stressed about this and somebody could say oh just do these you know focus on these four things right like, oh, well, I can do that. Like, that's a hell of a lot better than focusing on the news headlines or, you know, the folklore, or the policies around or your bank account or, I mean, there's a lot of shit to be
0: stressed Me- about. Meditate, meditate, sleep more, eat right, yep. and exercise. Yeah. It's not real difficult. Be the best you you can be because exactly. everybody's
1: going to get this. Like, everybody's going to be exposed to this virus. Yeah. What happens after you get exposed is depending upon how robust you are. Yeah. How robust you are is somewhat in your control. You can't control if you're 80, degree, 80 years old or not. Like you, you don't have any control of that. You are what, like that exists. Um, you know, if you already have some genetic, you know, immune disorder, you do, and you're one of the vulnerable we need to take extra care to protect the people that we right. know are more vulnerable. But the vast majority, like 90, probably 95% of us have a lot of control over how physically resilient, anti-fragile, robust, whatever you want to call it, healthy. We have some control over the physiology that we present when we do get exposed to this virus. Yeah. And the odds are drastically in your favor. So this is the reason you don't need to stress. The odds are drastically in your favor, as in like 99.9% chance you're not going to die from this when you get it. That's about the best odds you get for anything. There's probably more risk drinking a pint of beer than there is to that. Right. I mean, that's that's hyperbole.
0: But you, oh, get, geez, you get walk out. walking out your front door. I mean, walking right. down your steps is is probably more dangerous than percentage I mean, wise. Yeah. I mean, I would I would say
1: it's probably on par with getting struck by lightning. I mean it right. that, that sounds flippant, but it's probably accurate.
0: Yeah. Well, um all of all of Kirk's information is below. Uh, you'll actually be on Gallant Fuse uh, Zoom meeting this week as well. Did they give you a time yet? You don't. I don't
1: know that. what you're talking about, but I believe
0: you. <laughs> <laughs> the, I, I have a lot of
1: stuff on my schedule that I don't know about.
0: I think that you're you're booked with, uh, with a with a, vet, a veteran nonprofit. I think. I think. Oh. She, yeah, I just don't. I just don't know the time, but I will. It I will put it, I'll put it below. Uh, okay and with all your other stuff as well so and then you can go let you can go hear his uh, more of the mass talk which i just found hilarious i thought that was great <laughs> but uh thanks for coming on and uh before i go anything you want to say say or, or anything you're sharing oh, other man, than this just, information
1: just keep spreading the word keep on keeping on like let's get as many people as we can to be rational about this and calm uh, and you know, I I don't think it does any good right now to point the finger at people being irrational. Or just the best thing is just to be rational yourself and be an example for other people right now, and and do your best to you know live your life and not treat this like the boogeyman. Now there's a part of this that kind of feels like I'm trying to convince little kids that monsters aren't under their bed. You know, <laughs> uh, and it's hard it's hard to convince them. I just every time you turn the light off, they're like. Oh, really? Are you sure? (laughs) You know? Uh, so
0: that's it. That's, that's my advice. Be calm. Keep on, keep on keeping on. Yep. All right. uh,
1: You do it. You know, you can do man.
0: There you go. All right. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll talk next time.
1: All right, cool.